You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important news of the day through the framework of key Real Vision themes. Whether that's macro, liquidity, market structure, or crypto, we cover it all. Hi, I'm Jack Farley with Real Vision. We have our CEO, Rao Pal, standing by with Ash Bennington, and they're ready to give their macro analysis of what's going on. But before we go to them, let's quickly go over the latest news and data on the coronavirus pandemic, as well as markets. It's 3.30 p.m. Friday, April 10th. Today, the global death toll surpassed 100,000. Yesterday was the third day in a row that the world saw over 85,000 new cases. In Europe, we're seeing the five-day moving average of new cases leveling off, suggesting that we could be close to a peak. While in the U.S., COVID continues to spread. 44 states now have more than 500 confirmed cases, and in 11 of these states, there were over 1,000 new cases just yesterday. And if New York were a country, the state would have the sixth highest death count of any country in the world. But perhaps the most ominous news of the day is a leaked memo from the Department of Homeland Security that projects a truly nightmarish scenario. Obtained by the New York Times, this internal document models the damage if the quarantine in the U.S. were to end immediately. The models found that a complete end to the shutdown would lead to around 125 million cases and up to 300,000 deaths. Perhaps more alarmingly, it found that ending the shelter-in-place quarantine in 30 days could lead to as many as 105 million cases, and that's if moderate mitigation methods were still in place. In markets, it's Easter today, so I don't have a lot of price action for you. But there were some important stories I want to briefly go over before I turn it over to Rao and Ash. Today, the credit downgrades continued, this time in the airline sector, with Delta, American Airlines, Southwest, United Airlines Holdings, all getting significant downgrades by Fitch today. And with Delta being downgraded to double B, Delta is officially junk. In other news, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway tapped the international bond market Yesterday, borrowing 195.5 billion yen, or $1.8 billion. The yen dollar dynamics is fascinating. If you want to learn more about that, you should check out Rao's interview with James Aitken today, where James goes over that dollar-yen trade, as well as the cross-currency basis swap that underlines it. It really is a fascinating interview. Lastly, over the past three weeks, at least 16.7 million Americans have lost their jobs. Meanwhile, this week saw the greatest stock market rally since 1974. To make sense of all this chaos, we've got Rao Pal and Ash Bennington. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Friday, April 10th. I'm here with Real Vision CEO and co-founder, Rao Pal. Welcome, Rao. Thank you, Ash. Good to be here with you. So here we are, Rao. It's, uh, it's Good Friday. Markets in Europe and in the United States are closed in observation of Easter. Um, Tell me, when you look broadly at markets, when you think about what's happened over the last few weeks, you've just come out with an important piece 
uh, on Real Vision uh, called The Unfolding, where you unpack just your broad, big picture view of all of the things that are happening right now in, you know, with coronavirus, with the macroeconomic framework and with markets. So share with uh, our viewers what you're seeing in the broadest sense. So there's a, I'll try and distill it down. So basically, everyone's seen the video. So the, the basic idea is, I think the potential is three phases. The liquid, liquidation phase, the hope phase, and then the insolvency phase. The further along we go, the harder it is to project or forecast. So the liquidity phase, the question is, is where all anybody needs to know now is where are we? Are we still in the liquidation phase? Or have we finished it and are we in the hope phase? That's the debate the market's having. But it's actually relatively simple to me, and I think Roger's talked about this in the past, is we're at the 50% retracement of the entire um, down move. I have you know, a bunch of technical indicators in the shorter term that are diverging, suggesting it could roll over. Um, Bitcoin that's actually led a lot of this seems to have rolled over today while the S&P's closed. I seem to think that the narrative has been the Fed are helping, things are getting better in New York, things are getting better in Spain and Italy. Meanwhile, there's a sub-narrative just developing that I think is going to grip the markets over the next three weeks. One is uh, Japan is seeing some acceleration. Singapore has seen new clusters and uh, a growth in cases and has closed the economy down again. Um, we've also seen some, somewhat similar of a second wave in Vietnam. Then when you look at uh, Spain is struggling to try and decide whether to reopen or not. And again, it's probably too early to do it, considering how many people have been infected in Spain and how many people are dead for become infected. Um, Sweden is accelerating. Brazil is accelerating. These were economies that were less closed. Yes. Then other states in the United States, there's about 44 states now that have over a thousand cases. Now, usually that's an accelerator, and we have to see how that plays out. They won't all be uniform, but my fear is that the narrative is going to shift quite quickly to, oh, this is not over. There's a second wave elsewhere. And so we finish the liquidation phase over the next three weeks. I could be wrong, so it's a really difficult phase to trade. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very scary progression that you're describing here, effectively, uh, from illiquidity to insolvency. Yeah, and it's. it's um, I just did a ask me anything on Real Vision Pro, and just to describe it the simplest level for people to understand. You're a restaurant, mm. so restaurants in China reopened, and they asked for social distancing, which meant basically two thirds of less tables and a maximum of three people per table. The restaurant business is a small margin business. To remain open in a situation like that for a restaurant is basically an, uh, a grind to bankruptcy <laughs> because you've lost two-thirds of your revenue or more. So H&M opened in China. We must get our shops open down 50%. There's a recent report um, out of um, a retail analyst who's like basically saying, Retail, particularly the specialist retailers who have the lower end of the market, it's better for them to remain shut than reopen. Because the moment they reopen, they can't negotiate rents and everything else, and, and they have to pay staff. And before you know it, they're bankrupt. And that is the issue, is the incremental loss of growth 
doesn't generate enough cash flow to pay for debt. And that's it. And it's the same whether it's student loans, the same whether it's auto loans, and all the government's trying to do is backstop that for a period of time, three months. No mortgage payments for three months. Well, there's a big bloody assumption I keep telling people in that, that three months is after that, it's all okay. It's not. You know, absolutely. I think you've hit on what I think is the critical point, which is the, the disconnect between the real economy uh, and, and financial markets that we're seeing right now. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm here on uh, the Upper East Side in, uh, in New York City, and uh, you walk around and you, you see what is nothing short of absolute real economic carnage, right? You see stores that are boarded up, literally in some cases. You see signs on the window, uh, people saying, you know, we love our customers. Please help us out. We've set up a GoFundMe site. I mean, this is this is the real economy. And then you look at what's happening in financial markets. Look, I'm looking at some uh, numbers from 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 U.S. equity markets. You know, the S&P closed on Thursday. Now for the week, uh, and it's up 12.1 percent since last Friday's close. Uh, you know, S&P from total all-time high, which was February 19th, uh, is is only off 17.6 percent. It, it's really, but bear markets are a bitch. They're always so hard. I never forget um, running a hedge fund in 2001 and realizing that in a big bear market, the market went up more days than it went down by like a factor of two. Right. So it is so extraordinarily hard to trade bear markets. Right. And so a retracement of 50%. It's not uncommon. And so everyone's like, I don't understand it. But the problem is, is you're, everyone's fueling it by trying to short it and then covering it. Um, right. And that's what really what's going on. It's everyone's going, this is madness, but they're all the same people who are buying back their shorts. Um, so that's what's complicated about bear markets. They're really, really difficult to trade. And particularly in, I mean, I use a bit of technical analysis in the Elliott Wave terms, this Wave 4, Wave 5 transition is super hard. Because yeah. you kind of never know whether the bottom's in or not um, for a period of time. So I don't think it is, and that's been my base case, but you just don't know. So you're just racked with fear of, am I wrong, am I right, am I wrong, am I right all day, all night? You know, that's such an important point for, for people who may be relatively new to markets and have only been here from the ride up. The ability to describe what happens in bear markets and the unusual dynamics and the unusual properties and the difficulty that they present to trade is such an important point. Yeah, I mean, one of the features of a bear market is how fast it rises. It actually rises often faster than it goes down. Some of the biggest days are often on the up days. Um, and that makes it very hard. You know, shorting, it's not the same as buying a bull market, shorting a bear market. They're not inverse. Right. Don't forget, right. why macro people love bear markets and the tops of cycles is because normally the bull market plays out over, let's say, eight years. So it's an eight-year return stream. All the returns in a bear market tend to come in 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. So you can make extraordinary returns. But within that comes the volatility. A bull market is almost defined by low volatility, and a bear market is defined by really high volatility. So it makes it really hard. I mean, I had a really good friend of mine who, 
over the 2000 period was very bearish, was short most of the time, but kind of short term time horizon. He lost 30% by being short mm-hmm. <laughs> in a bear market. It's because you get stopped out every time the market rallies, and it's really hard. Right. Those positioning dynamics are crucial, and the margin calls of liquidations that occur really change the dynamics and make them not a mirror image, not a flip version of it. And, and, and the time frames get compressed dramatically. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm looking for now is I'm eyeing the bond market that looks like yields on a fall again. Mm. And I'm starting to build a thesis that in the optimism phase that I think comes, whatever format that takes, whether it's a three-month, one-month, six-month, whatever it looks like rally, a stabilization, is I have a feeling the bond market is going to go to negative yields. Mm. And we'll hear a narrative of, this is wrong, it's a technical thing, it's nothing to do with this, blah, 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 like we heard about the inverted yield curve, which ends up working every time, right? Um, So, I think we will see the bond market go negative in the US, which will be the bonds telling us insolvency is the big risk, the debt deflation. People are not going to want to believe it. So, I was thinking, how do I know in that hope phase where where the net, where, where the underlying realities change and i think the bond market will be the answer because it's the bond market is almost always right mm. it has a much better predictive record certainly than us equities yes because equities are based on earnings and emotion and blah 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 well bonds are basically gdp plus inflation right and bond yields are a function of gdp and inflation really you know, the other big uh, news story that's uh, come out since we last had you on uh, was the Fed effectively announced uh, yesterday that uh, they were going to be buying junk. I mean, the language that they used, it's like Oracle of Delphi kind of stuff, right? Like by expanding the size and scope of primary uh, and secondary market corporate credit facilities, they're buying junk. So what is happening here is, look, we talked about this in the doom loop when I talked about it, is as soon as things get downgraded, there's the junk bond market cannot absorb it. So the Fed aren't trying to, I don't think they're trying to stop price discovery. They're trying to stop an obliteration of the junk bond market where it freezes. So, you know, I think that's what they're trying to do because they won't buy every single junk bond from Ford, for example. They'll just try and smooth the market, which is what the ECB have done, but probably more aggressively so. Um, but the question is, is what happens if Ford goes bankrupt? Then it's on the Fed's balance sheet. Which, which companies get bailed out, which don't? They're looking at how to deal with the private sector. Look, it's a mess. And who the hell knows how this is going to lead? But all we know is I, I never get caught up in the detail of all of this stuff, the alphabet soup. Every, all they're trying to do right now is try and stop gap the liquidity loss. You know, we probably lost, we lost from peak to trough, we lost 50% of GDP in stock market valuation, Mm. plus probably 7.5% of GDP in actual economic loss, plus the losses in the credit market, plus, plus, plus. We're at 20% of GDP. I mean, sorry, we're at $20 trillion. So the Fed have done six. You know, it's not stimulus. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in, in, in nominal percentage terms, the peak to trough max drawdown was only about 34% in the S&P. But as you point out, against uh, U.S. GDP, these are, these are staggering numbers. Huge. But interesting enough, that's exactly the same drawdown from the 1925, uh, 29 liquidation event. It was yeah, there's a chart that you show in, in the unfolding that shows that point. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting news this week, you saw that this morning uh, the Europeans basically rejected the idea of the euro bond. Debt mutualization has always been the third rail of the eurozone project, hasn't it? So I don't know. What do you? How do you see that play out then? I mean, this is difficult for Italy now. Um, there's nobody to help them. <laughs> I think we're in the middle of a, of a. I think this is a catalyst for an existential crisis that's been building in Europe for a very long time. And I think that there, look, there's a. This is a visceral, emotional time when you're seeing your friends and family, you know, lose older relatives. When you're when you're seeing, you know, people, frankly, dying. It's, it, there must be a sense of, are we in this together? Or is this, is this just a bureaucratic structure that we're part of? Because if it's a bureaucratic structure, what's really the advantage for the average you know, Italian citizen, for the average Spanish citizen? And I, I, I really wonder if this is going to, going to cause a reckoning, if there's some way that, that, that they can square the circle, split the difference, however you want to phrase it, between the camps that have developed between uh, you know Germany and the Netherlands on the one hand, and and most obviously Italy and Spain on the other, but this is a really, this is a really, this is an existential issue. It's a real philosophical issue. You know, do do people who are Italians and Spaniards they really feel like they're Europeans first and foremost, especially at times of crisis? If you're living in Italy, you're so attached to the Italian identity, to family, to the framework of of culture. I just, this is a big philosophical problem, and I don't think there's an obvious solution uh, in the bureaucratic framework. That said, look, Christine Lagarde was probably brought in uh, at the ECB uh, because of her skill and her nuance in handling, you know, these very tricky political issues. She's not an academic PhD economist. Uh, she's the kind of person who, if there's a deal to cut, will be able to make it. I, I don't know, Raul, is there a deal to be cut, though? You know, interestingly, I, I do think, having lived in Spain for 10 years and had a place there for 20, they do really think of themselves as Europeans. So there is a dual identity that goes on. Uh, like New Yorkers think they're Americans. But they're kind of, sometimes, yeah. Um, and so there is that strong sense because Spain benefited so much from Europe. Right. But in this, it is really difficult, as you say, that that they have to fight this and there's nobody to help them because the structure's not there. Right. The Economist ran an article today, and, and it's, it's the right question. It's like, Europe's going to have to make a choice. It either goes to a full fiscal union right. or it breaks up. But this halfway house cannot continue. So I think, and I'm bearish on the euro, and I have been and remain so, I just think the market is going to push this to get the answer. We've been in purgatory now for decades, right? Yeah. This, is, this is, was on, you know, 1999 to, uh, to 2007 uh, was the honeymoon period, so to speak. And, and then the, the, these underlying questions were unla unmasked 
during uh, during the great financial crisis, during the global financial crisis, and and now they're coming to a head again. And it, it's a this is this is, these are very complicated issues. The idea of of sort of dual identity and and how you identify as European versus Spanish versus Italian versus German and, and Dutch. These are really complicated questions. But also, this probably applies to most of the supranational organizations or the rules-based global order system like NATO, for example. Right. Is NATO really there for you or not? How does it work when one of the aggressors may be Turkey within NATO? You know, it's not clear that we have the right institutions for the world that we live in, and they're all getting tested. Look, absolutely. Article 5 has become more complex. But, but also, Rao, to exactly your point, this is happening in the United States, right? We, I mean, one of the most staggering news stories that I saw was that the Rhode Island uh, police, uh, the state police of Rhode Island, were going around and looking for New York plates, right? I mean, talk about issues that we never thought we would be talking about in terms of, of multiple and complex overlapping identities. Rhode Islander versus New Yorker? This was a distinction that was non-existent in February. That's right. And, and my fear of the rolling shutdown case, so let's say the U.S. reopens in two months' time, and then Boston gets the virus, you know, gets the next outbreak, right. and then everybody from Boston is sealed in, and now you don't want any Bostonian near you. What does that do to society? Because everybody becomes your enemy. It already is that. You walk into the store, you're like, who are you? Keep away from me. Don't come near me. Who touched that? You know, the, how long are we able as a society to deal with that kind of human emotional scarring? And if this goes on for six or nine months, which I think is the most likely outcome, what does that do to society? It's it's a really powerful question. Look, this is not an issue that they've had to date, for example, in, in China, when you have the ability of an autocratic government to unilaterally make these decisions. These kinds of questions don't come up. But in 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 Western democracies, you know, I have the sense that in, in, in the US and Europe that that Western democracies are better than their institutions. You know, that the the people, the the you know, the business base, we're all better than the institutions we have. And and they seem to be, as you point out, really reaching a breaking point or a stretching point and inflection point, perhaps, that determines what the future outlook looks like going forward. Yeah, it just feels like there's going to be a lot of change in this. I don't really know what it is. And I know there's a there's a tendency of people within, particularly the financial market world, to be mean reversionists. Right. Like, everything goes back to the mean. It's all okay. But anybody who studies history realizes that there are secular changes that occur. Yeah. Trying to identify, is this part of the secular change, which is the same distrust of nations that we've had with, um, um, with trade tariffs. Mm. It's the same distrust that's mounting U.S. versus China. There's a general insularization of not only uh, economies, but even subsections on economies, which is all part of that global tribalism that has been rising in different areas over time. You know, even, you know, crypto, they're all split into tribes. And there's the gold tribe versus the crypto tribe. And then there's the, you know, everyone wants to tribalize right now. Um, as opposed to socialize in the, in the full texture of the word. 
yeah, I completely agree with you on uh, this. Is, doesn't seem like a mean reversion event. This feels like a, a jump state event. This seems like a regime shift event. It seems like an event, you know, like almost like World War II, where there was a, you know, there was a, there was a status quo before and there's a status quo after, and they don't, we don't know exactly now how things are going to change, but they are. You bring up another really interesting point that I wanted to touch on. You know, the one, the one market right now today here in, in the U.S. that you can express a view about your optimism or pessimism about the state of the world is cryptocurrency. And um, I believe it was Barry Silbert who said, you know, crypto markets are doing what they were built to do, to be totally independent of nation states, to continue to operate 24 by 7 by 365. And um, it's really interesting to see the role or the shifting role that cryptocurrency is going to play. However, leverage is still a top layer within it. Mm. So that's what's highly correlated to the S&P right now. Because there's a bunch of hedge funds, there's a bunch of family offices, there's a bunch of people who are restricted by liquidity. So it's gone are the days where it was the individual crypto anarchist hodler who was uncorrelated to markets. Right. There's now a bunch of players that if you get a liquidation event or your prime broking line gets pulled or, or whatever it is, have to liquidate crypto. Right. Um, so, and there's a bunch of leverage, you know, within exchanges like BitMEX and stuff like that, or whether it's the futures. So there is a layer of leverage within it now, implicit, that's causing it to act like other assets at the moment in this liquidation phase. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know some some of these uh, some of these uh, sort of uh, offshore exchanges are are levered up at maximum leverage of like thirty to one in some places. Yeah. Lehman Brothers levels. Yeah. So it's pretty dangerous as a world, um, but it is free and it's not, and it's, it, it is free and there's nobody else interfering with it, but it is still susceptible to what's going on in the outside world, right. the financial world. It, it didn't used to be, but it is now, which is interesting. I, I don't know what that means, whether it's just the, just now in this liquidation events or whether it's it becomes more correlated over time, which would be a shame. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this, like, talk about things in a limbo state. It's this weird X, not X, right, where it was totally uncorrelated. Uh, as, as you point out, the, the hodlers did not care about uh, U.S. equity market gyrations. And now when the leverage gets pushed through the system, you know, it's always interesting. Leverage always acts the same in every, in every environment, right? It forces you to liquidate positions that you don't want to liquidate. Yeah. So, I mean, for the long-term buyer, there's opportunity. And I think, you know, this is a, um, you know, as you know, I've talked about this for a long time, is just, uh, this is a good opportunity. So even if it does liquidate back down to 3,000 or whatever the number is, it's kind of, okay, where's it going to be in three years' time? Right. What is the probability it's not going to be 10x, let alone 50x? Yeah. I mean, it becomes, it becomes totally speculative because there's no data. But the, the one thing that I feel reasonably confident saying is that if you look at the world in 2030, you know, the structures, institutions, commerce, financial services are going to have a backbone layer that is going to be far more dependent on blockchain and digital assets and all of these exciting new technologies than, you know, than, than they do today by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, so I just want to ask you, so how's the mood in New York? Or, or you, you don't even know anymore because you don't see anybody? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's very, it's very um, 
it's very orderly. It's very it's very peaceful. But there's this underlying sense of tension. You know, people are uh, are kind of snapping at each other in grocery stores. You're not six feet away. Where's your mask? Right. And we're starting to we're starting to see that kind of stuff. But it is it is it is very orderly. It's very peaceful. Um, the streets are largely empty. The 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 high rise that I live in is is probably down to about 65 percent uh, occupancy right now in terms of people who are living here. Um, the streets are incredibly quiet in night at night. Uh, they're a ghost town. The uh, mass transit is running, but it's basically uh, it's basically only the essential workers who need to be on it who are on it. Uh, the trains are far too crowded. Uh, in terms of uh, the social distancing perspective, they really should uh, be running more trains. But you know, we've uh, unfortunately we've seen here in New York that uh, that mass transit workers uh, and NYPD, the police department here, has been struck very hard by this virus. So there are some there are some structural challenges. Uh, things are basically holding together. People are relying on uh, on food delivery, uh, the, uh, the the restaurant delivery. Groceries are hard to get uh, delivered to your house. There just aren't windows. Everybody's trying to get these delivery windows at the same time, and uh, it's very challenging to get one. Um, but um, you know, things are things are holding together, and um, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't think the 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 people who are who are panicking and saying there's going to be social unrest in New York City, I, I don't see it happening. And, Anytime in the near future, if things can continue at the rate they're at, I really think about, and this is something that I'm curious to hear your opinion about. One of the things that I've I've always believed is the underlying third realm of this crisis potentially is supply chains. The ability to get look, it's all well and good to say I'm self-isolating in my apartment in my house if you're able to get food, if you're able to get paper towels. Uh, but if that switch gets flipped, there's real there's a real challenge. And and today, and that's my fragility of where I am right now, because I'm on a small island off another small island, <laughs> off the coast of the United States, well, in the middle of the Caribbean, actually, a long way from anywhere, right. which is basically fed by um, two ports, uh, because most of our food comes in ha is USDA approved, because mm. that's our way of regulating our food supplies is piggyback on yours. Mm. So that means the boats come from Miami, and from Houston. So if anything happens to that supply chain, the whole Caribbean is out of food. And we don't grow anything here. We have bits. Sure, you can fish and eat coconuts, but you know, uh, but you know, it, that's a serious issue is the supply chains. Even yeah. Prime Minister of Singapore was talking about the supply chains with Malaysia were already strained because uh, Malaysia's gone into shutdown. Yeah, um, and, and, you know this also brings up how this is going to shift. If, if we if we think forward and maybe are a little bit optimistic about the the future, you also have to wonder. You look at like Macy's, for example, laid off 125 or 100,000, 130,000 people. They they furloughed them, I believe. But look, we're in what looks like a, a position where we have a catalyst for a durable realignment of the way supply chains and retail and wholesale distribution work in the U.S. and the world. So what you're telling me, going back to a conversation we were having, that we're about to dismantle the WTO. Well, um... so we're dismantling the WTO. You know, there's stuff like NATO at risk. We're dismantling the EU. Sounds tremendously like the fourth turning to me. Well, you know, the, the phrase that keeps coming up with, with Ed and with Roger is Nidian uncertainty, unmodelable uncertainty. We, we just don't know. And it sounds like a cop out. But it is really a valuable position. I know. Yes, it's very honest. 
to yeah. say, we don't know. Too many people have a strict opinion on stuff. You just have to say, listen, this is how I best see it. I have no real clue here. Yeah. This is how and this is why. And that's, I think, people just have to, to do that. And the other thing people must do is stop saying it should be like this. They shouldn't do it that way. It makes no difference. It is. <laughs> and you have to act with the is. If not, it's a political thing, and that's okay. But your time frame is not fast enough to get anything changed. Yeah. So you have to deal with what is and not what could have been. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect mirror image of what people were saying about central bank liquidity in the wake of the financial crisis. Well, they're saying it now about the Fed, right? They're like, they're, they're all getting themselves wrapped up in the arguments about should they buy junk or shouldn't they? Yeah. It's irrelevant. Yeah. They're buying it. Yes. What does it mean? HY ETFs rising dramatically yesterday on the news. Yeah, but, that, but that's the real key here is, and I learned that lesson as well, because I've, I've, I've been victim of that in the past. Mm -hmm. It's like, just accept it to be what it is. Then you can figure out how things should react and how people will react around it. But don't think how you want it to be, because the market don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And on that profound point, we should probably leave it there. Any closing thoughts? <laughs> no, I think everyone should just have a nice long weekend. I know it's a weird time because Easter's massive in Europe. So it's Friday off, Monday off. So every European is now, well, they're at home, but they're trying to have some downtime. In the US, it's sort of a half holiday and Monday's not a holiday. But just everybody, you included, we've all been working far too hard. We've let the, our days blend into our nights, our work days blend into our social life, everything. So just use the chance to just get some sanity back, get some rest and stop looking at Twitter and everything else and just go read a book and do something else. Yeah, we're, we're absolutely. We're fortunate to be able to do this from our homes for, for Real Vision, right? That we literally can just keep rolling. You just, you get in front of the computer and we and we do what we do. And we're, we're really fortunate to be able to do that and to have people stick with us through this crisis. But uh, yeah. it's great advice. Uh, everyone stay safe and enjoy the holiday with your families. Yeah. Take care, Ash. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Ralph. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.